I'm Betsy Reed, and this is The Discomfort Practice, where I talk to creatives, activists, leaders, scientists, and a host of others about discomfort, about the role it's played in their lives, who they are and what they do in the world, and the value of discomfort in helping us move forward as a society. Discomfort is just the edge of your comfort zone, and on the other side are superpowers. So settle yourself in, and let's get uncomfortable. All right, well, I've just counted us in three, two, one, and here we are recording. And I'm kind of getting used to having these really late night my time, early morning their time chats with guests in places like Australia and New Zealand. And it's because there's so much exciting stuff going on and I can't help myself. So here I am sitting in my little home recording booth on a Wednesday night at 9.30 at night. And my guest, it is early morning, Thursday morning for her. So I'm really excited. We've been trying to arrange this interview for a bit, and it's to time around a book that is being published. So let me tell you about it. So Alina Siegfried, my next guest, is a storyteller, narrative strategist, which is a great term, by the way, systems change advocate, TEDx speaker, and award-winning spoken word artist, whose stage name is Ali Jax. She's from Wellington, New Zealand. So Alina's journey in storytelling and communications has taken her through environmental advocacy, political issues, campaigning, social enterprise, crowdfunding, arts, and community development. In her role as the founding communications lead of the Edmund Hillary Fellowship, and if you know anything about Edmund Hillary, famous Antarctic explorer, she's helped bring together a global community of 500 world-leading entrepreneurs, investors, artists, and system change leaders to develop transformative solutions to pressing global challenges. Her book is A Future Untold, The Power of Story to Transform the World and Ourselves, and it will be published at the end of this month, October 2021. It's centered around Alina's own 15-year journey through storytelling and creating narratives for systems change. So for those of you who don't know the jargon I've just used, for example, systems change, it's basically changing the patterns, structures, and systems that have previously existed. For example, you know, how we make and use money, how we extract oil from the ground to make the pieces of plastic and other products that keep our world going. All these systems that need to change, but that we're enmeshed in, that we're part of. So those of us who've orbited around systems change are generally coming at it from the perspective that the systems that have helped to build society to this point are no longer working and need to be overhauled or completely reinvented in order to create a future in which humans and all beings on this planet can thrive. So I'm quoting one of her many incredible reviews by some pretty jaw-droppingly impactful and famous people here. And I love this. It says, a future untold is simultaneously smart and accessible, eye-opening and multidisciplinary, a broad survey of trends inflected with anecdotes rich in meaning. It is sober in its analysis of the scale of our challenges while remaining deeply optimistic in spirit which nails the balance, in my opinion. So as I'm more or less saying, at the start of every episode in season three of The Discomfort Practice, Alina and I are having this conversation today because there's finally enough widespread awareness that the systems upon which we rely, that we are enmeshed in, whether it's the microplastics coming out of your laundry every time you do a load and going into the ocean or whatever, that people are now aware that we are breaking our planet and ourselves and we need to radically shift systems. And lest that seem hugely overwhelming, Alina is here to offer some solutions and some really beautiful narratives. 
So now is the time to have these conversations and to challenge ourselves, to trigger ourselves, to seek out discomfort in order to help us find new ways of being and acting. And I'm really excited about this conversation. I'm excited to talk about Alina's book and to learn more about the process that went into this book and also, let's let's face it, the discomfort of trying to publish and promote a book during a pandemic. So welcome, Alina. Thank you, Betsy. It's exciting to be here. Oh gosh. Yeah, we've been we've been uh back and forthing. And I'm really, really happy to have you here because we were introduced by um a mutual acquaintance, Zoe Arden, who I also mentioned in my last interview, uh, or a recent interview with Martin Roberts from CISL, Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership. So again, shout out to Zoe Arden. She's becoming a regular among shout my out shout outs. I know. She knows all the good people. So we're going to talk about the power of stories to change the world. You know, just a small topic, but something that's, you know, your, your focus area of expertise. But as you know, my first question is always the same. And it's what's an uncomfortable moment that's changed your life, that shaped who you are and what you do in the world? I'm going to tell you a story, Betsy, that's in the book, actually. A, uh, a story that unfolded about ooh, eight or nine years ago. I was preparing to speak at TEDx Christchurch. And uh, the subject of my talk was about the power of spoken word poetry to encourage behavior change. And there was a lot of focus on authenticity in storytelling. And I had alluded in my draft of the talk when I was, when I was figuring out what I wanted to say um, to something crazy that had been going on in my life. And I had learned a great deal about myself and, you know, things were intense and, and then I quickly moved on. And I, I had sent the draft uh, talk to the speaker coach a few weeks before the event. And he straight up called me out on it, emailed me back within a few hours <laughs> and said, hey, what's this crazy thing that's going on? Um, you know, I think people will want to know about that. Um, and what I had been desperately trying to avoid doing in my um, TED talk was uh, coming out as gay to an audience of 700 people. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> and indeed, any, any number of people who might find that talk on the internet at, at any other you know, future date. So what the crazy thing that had been going on in my life um, was coming to the realization or becoming, you know, finally uncomfortable enough that something had to change uh, at the age of 27 that I had been avoiding the truth about myself for many, many years and, um, and that I had consequently come out and ended a relationship, a five-year relationship with a really uh, kind and, and lovely man with whom I'd just bought a house a few months earlier. And oh, wow. <laughs> Deeply uncomfortable. Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was insane. Yeah, so that, um, that process of, you know, in the end I, I did adjust my TED Talk to, to announce that part of myself to 700 people. And um, that was, yeah, really uncomfortable. Wow. And had you had all of the important conversations with all of the people close to you by then? Or was this also coming out to some people who knew you? I think, I mean, I'd, I'd had most of the important conversations by that point. There might have been a few, you know, friends or acquaintances in the audience that didn't know this about me. But I had come out probably two years earlier, three years earlier. So I had become a little bit more comfortable with it in myself. But certainly... Um, you know, I wasn't in the habit of announcing it to strangers or anything like that. Um, and I mean, this was 2013. Um, New Zealand didn't have marriage equality yet. 
Um, And there was still, you know, a a pretty significant pushback in the discussions around those kinds of um, equal Mm. rights for LGBTQ plus people. And um, and it just, yeah, it was terrifying, to be honest. Yeah, pre-marriage equality, it just seems so long ago and yet it really wasn't. But when you think coming out as this is potentially going to affect my human rights, that's Mm -hmm. a big, big deal. So how yeah. did, and is, how, is this how going to you? you know is this going to um, affect my employment um, prospects in the future or or anything like that? Um, how did it shape me? Um, is a good question. Um, that TED talk was actually a jumping off platform for a lot of cascading, um, happy serendipitous moments. Actually, so it certainly was the right move. Um, and and being vulnerable and authentic and messy in our story is in our storytelling is certainly something that I advocate for now. I ended up having a conversation at the the event after party that evening with a friend um, who was trying to step out of a out of a job um, with a, a tech startup that was focused on collaborative decision making online. And at the moment at that time I was working in New Zealand's um, parliament in, in um, campaign communications and campaign organizing around certain issues. And so to step from um, the decision-making mechanisms of parliament into this radical tech startup that was trying to change the way we make decisions online to be more participatory um, was just fantastic. And so after that conversation, you know, a few emails later, I found myself with a new job um, at half of my salary um, and, <laughs> oh, and startup six, world. six months contract with no security after that. And I just jumped straight in. Wow. So one discomfort led to another. That's the moral of this story, folks. Just know it's slippery slope. Once you start to practice <laughs> discomfort, it kind of just, it's like a mud shoot. Sometimes you're just like, oh, oh, I got, oh, oh, it keeps getting worse. But then you learn you can just handle it, right? It just keeps coming. Yeah. And then you're on this exciting ride where yeah. nothing, nothing can knock you off track because you stepped off track. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. I made this decision. <laughs> Um, and then, yeah, you just you learn those mechanisms to cope with things that are uncomfortable and things that are unexpected, um, and you build resilience. And I guess that's something you just can't learn without going through it. You have to step into it. Resilience is just such a beautiful concept, actually. I'm really getting into the term resilience, the concept of resilience, because it is just basically like, I am bulletproof. You're not bulletproof, but you know what I mean? Like, you can handle whatever life throws at you once you... You have the recipe, your personal recipe for resilience, actually. So talk to us about storytelling. I mean, you are an expert on it. You wrote a book on it. So we'll get to what led you to write the book. But let's just talk about storytelling. What is it? Why is it so powerful? Well, everything is stories, really. The whole world is built upon stories. Um, All of the systems that we look around at, all of the anthropogenic systems, at least, are, are built on narratives around things that we have decided collectively are the way things are. So, for example, to use your, your example from earlier, that, that we need money to live, that that's the best way to organize our society is to swap our labor for this transactional um, means of exchange and, um, 
we have narratives around time, around education, around hierarchy of, of whose voice is important in our society and whose isn't. And everything basically is built upon these narratives. And because it was us, that, um, that is humans collectively, that developed these narratives, they are not laws of the natural world. They are, they are things that we invented. We are the ones who can change them. And I think for me... Um, the key to solving our big systemic challenges around climate change, poverty, inequality, the acidification of the oceans, the the com- complete collapse of a lot of parts of the biosphere, um, all comes down to rewriting the stories about our relationships between these different systems. And I suppose there's also there's an emotional aspect to it, isn't there? Because we are logical beings, but we are first and foremost well, animal-brained, emotional beings who react to stories more than we do to logic, right? We so are. We so are. You know, we, we think we are these clever, rational beings who have triumphed upon, over the world of nature and that we have science to explain everything. But as we know, we, we don't have science to explain everything. And um, as you said, you know, we, we are much more moved by story than we are by facts and figures. I mean, 40 years of climate inaction has shown us that. Um, we, we need a new narrative, a new story around climate change that is grounded in, in love and support and care for the natural world. Um, I'll use an analogy. I have two children and I don't, I don't look after those children and feed them and you know, clothe them and care for them and love them because it's the law that I have to do that, right? Mm. I do that because I love them and because I want to take care of them and I feel a connection to them. That's how I think we need to start looking at the natural world and climate change is that we shouldn't be doing it because we have a responsibility or we have to or, you know, our country will get in trouble with the UN if we don't. We should be doing it because we feel a sense of awe and and wonder at this world around us and we want to protect it. It sounds as if it's a really easy response to what do you say to people who don't believe in climate science? You just say, well, that doesn't matter. How can we tell them a story that inspires them and makes them want to be part of this natural world and yeah. make sure that they get to continue to enjoy it because they love it? Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, to those people, I would say, Regardless of whether you think this is anthropogenic or not, something is happening here. And um, do we do we want to change our systems to look after the planet better? Even you know, if if you don't believe that that humans are inducing climate change, do you still agree that there's some pretty problematic things about what we're doing to the planet in terms of cutting down forests and clear felling and planting, you know, palm oil monocultures and so on? Um, yeah, there's, there's always, you can always come back to story. And that's, I think, especially where the role of, of listening to somebody else's narrative becomes very important, is that I think you find with, with people that are really attached to this, this narrative that they have, um, is just to listen to them and say, you know, well, why does that, um, you know, why does that ring so strongly for you? Or uh, tell me about how you got there and try to understand person to person um, what you know, what thesis they're coming from, and what that's built upon, and find some common ground. It's interesting the the point about listening because we talk about storytelling, and obviously the you know the word telling is all about outward, about conveying something. But 
well, what you've said about listening kind of preempts a question I was going to ask about how sharing stories can help us to address polarization and more divisiveness and more estrangement from each other because obviously we see culture wars and being from the US we are really good at culture war but it, you know how do we how do we tackle the challenges of social media where we end up in our echo chambers and our bubbles with interacting only with people who agree with us and i think listening is the answer isn't it listen to the stories of others and you don't have to agree with them but listening Listening is productive, isn't it? It is, and and I wouldn't, you know, I don't, I, I, I wouldn't say, you know, that that's going to be completely the answer because these things are so complex. But it's a big part of the solution, is that a lot of people, they don't necessarily need to be right or need to win an argument. They just want you to listen and hear their point of view. And this is a big focus of my book, actually, is um, is storytelling to overcome polarization and culture wars because in essence all of all of our strongly held views and beliefs you know at whatever end of the of the political spectrum they might lie or or whatever communities we surround ourselves with um, they are really um, the result of of narratives and stories that we hold to be true about ourselves about other people about the world that we live in about how it works and a lot of these stories are grounded um, very early in childhood, in our experiences um, with with family, in our experiences with other people, um, in in the the environments in which we grew up, and so we we hold on to these stories and we believe them to be true because we've never really seriously examined them, and for many of us, you know, increasingly now with social media echo chambers we have less and less opportunities to hear the points of view and stories of other people who have had, you know, incredibly different backgrounds than we have. And, and I mean, taking it online is, you know, a, a recipe for disaster because there's no room for nuance and context and body language and, and that sort of thing when you're just commenting on threads. Um, it's, yeah, it's so devoid of, um, of that deeper meaning. Mm. But at the same time, online does offer this potential for reach and exposure to things that you would never be able to access. I mean, I was sort of taking the metro home from teaching yoga to do this interview and, and just looking through Instagram and seeing these beautiful pictures of indigenous people around the world in places that I'm like, wow, Bhutan and Papua New Guinea and China and just being like, this is beautiful. This is a beautiful reminder and chance to learn. So I I kind of don't want to rush to condemn social media too much. You know, it's it's like anything else. It's never completely good and never completely bad. I mean, anybody who's ever tried to have a nuanced dialogue or conversation or let's say argument on WhatsApp or social media is knows the, the limitations of it. But to gather information, it's such a beautiful source. And as a source for visual storytelling. And it I mean, you know, I don't want to bag social media completely. It certainly has provided so many uh, good things to us. And I think a, a key point that you hit on there is is nuance. Um, and that's something else that I talk about in the book is that in this day and age, I think more than ever, we are incredibly uncomfortable with the notion of paradox or of ambiguity. We need things to be right or wrong, black or white, um, you know. And, and when something's in that middle ground, 
where um, you know there are good and bad elements to it. We we feel the need to label it as as one thing. Um, but I think in order to solve a lot of these big problems that I talk about in the book, we need to become much more comfortable with the idea of paradox and holding opposing views. And as you said before, not necessarily agreeing with somebody, but hearing their point of view and respecting them nonetheless. Yes. But also, how does that tie to our need for certainty? Because obviously, it's something we all just naturally reach for in discomfort. So as we go through a lot of system changes and and breakdown of certain things we've always thought were absolutely stable, you know, sort of government that we could trust, facts we thought we knew, sources of information, the list goes on, obviously, and the pandemic has really helped with everybody's fear. Um, we we want to be certain, don't we? But we actually need to get comfortable with uncertainty. We need to change our relationship with certainty in order to hold space for paradox and for maybe nobody to be right and nobody to be wrong. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's it, is changing our relationship to certainty. And you know what I what I largely see as a as a driver of these culture wars as well is that people are craving some sort of certainty and something that solid that they can cling to in an, in an increasingly chaotic world. I mean, you look at the world around us, um, ecological systems breaking down, climate change, and then you throw a massive global pandemic on top of things. Um, everything is, is chaotic and, and we're looking for, for certainty or ways of making sense of this. Um, and sometimes there's, there's little sense to be made. <laughs> Or, or the the sense that that we can find um, only makes sense when you when you look at so many different um, data points and um, and the complexity of all of these colliding systems, basically. Like the you know the the virus is is very much you know has come from our um, encroachment into the natural world. That's that's mm. where it came from. Is is us increasingly take o- taking over wildlife spaces and suddenly have a virus jump from the animal world into the human world. So as um, uh, Johan Rockström is a, a Swedish sustainability expert and he's um, recently put out a Netflix documentary with Sir David Attenborough called Breaking Boundaries on, um, on Netflix, which I, I highly recommend checking out. Um, but he, he wrote the foreword for my book, and um, in it he says that COVID-19 was no black swan. We should absolutely have expected this. This is what, this is what we would expect when, you know, in the age of the Anthropocene, um, that is the, the human um, species of this planet absolutely taking over all angles and all, uh, all corners of the planet. This is what we should expect. Mm-hmm. And more of this. I was recently speaking to my guest, Ben Bowen, who is Indigenous Australian, runs a tech startup there, um, or tech platform. And he was talking about how the elders in his community are just like, well, we kind of told you this was going to happen in terms of the pandemic, because you can only push the boundaries of nature so long before this happens. And it's just been interesting to realize this wisdom has always been there, but we just kind of had such a fancy idea about our own importance as humans. So I'm going to go back to uncertainty. And I'm wondering, what can fill the void? You know, as we need to learn to grapple with uncertainty, I mean, some people are just going to go vote for whoever makes them certain, 
you know, when we're seeing the rise of far right movements and sort of strong man leaders who promise certainty against scary things like immigrants or people who believe differently than you. So what, what can we fill that space with instead that inspires and unites us? That's a very good question, Betsy. I mean, for me, it, we, we need to have more community around us. We need to have larger circles of people who we interact with daily. Um, in many ways, our lives have become very individualistic. And I mean, the, the American, America is a poster child for this, right? Oh my the God, American I'm from dream. cowboy country. It's all about <laughs> self-reliance and libertarianism. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, one of the themes in my book is, is that we do need to return to a wide-scale collectivism, both in, you know, the, the very everyday situations of who we interact with, talking to our, you know, our, our neighbors, our, our grocery store clerks, whoever it might be, and, and moving away from this narrative of I am responsible for my own individual circumstances, whether that be a success or, you know, or living in poverty, that a person is responsible for, for the circumstances they find themselves in. And um, yeah, I mean, for me, there's a, there's a piece there around, as I said, interacting with people you don't, you don't necessarily agree with. I yeah, feel like I'm going it, a little off track here. Maybe you know, collectivism. <laughs> I, I was wondering, because actually that's really related to storytelling because it is one of those things that is very, very human, right? I'm about to get my 10 bells because it's 10 o'clock. But yeah, I think that actually lends itself neatly to storytelling because it is an intrinsic human thing that cuts across any social construct of class or socioeconomic status. So let's talk about how storytelling can unite us and maybe some of the content of your book. Sure. Yeah, I mean, on the, on the topic of um, story listening, I'll, I'll, I'll share a, um, an example. We were running a conference um, with the Edmund Hillary Fellowship, who I worked with for five years. It was an uh, impact summit of, um, of global leaders working in, in impact entrepreneurship. Um, we had government people there along from New Zealand. Um, we had business people. And we had some um, some members of of the local iwi, the local Maori um, uh, tribe, if you will, um, who our organisation had built a relationship with. And um, in in one breakout session, um, one of the um, EHF fellows was hosting a session about a potential environmental um, policy framework that New Zealand could be looking at, and mentioned that um, they had talked to. Um, the local iwi and that um, and that the, um, the leadership was on board with it and um, there was a, a, a woman in the room who was um, a respected member of that um, of that group a um, a komatoa basically a, an elder of of the local iwi um, who said actually no we we, we haven't agreed to support it um, and so there was there was a little bit of of back and forth there around um, you know what had or hadn't happened and and this fellow kind of tried to move things along and smooth things over um, but the elder you know kept on interjecting and pushing this and and what happened is that um, this this would be conversation around um, this this environmental framework that we were looking at 
turned instead into a um, you know a ninety minute long conversation around the ways that we bring our different worldviews and different ways of decision making to the table, which was fascinating, um, really really uncomfortable as well for for the people in the session. There was about fifty people in a big circle, and um, you know challenging for uh, and very uncomfortable for this fellow who had been trying to run a collaborative session but at the same time you know highly uncomfortable and also also really challenging for for the elder who of course has seen um, many generations of their voices being suppressed and of collaboration processes and decision making process being being rushed and I mean in in, in Maori culture traditionally if a, if a major decision is to be made People will come together to to meet and discuss, and anybody can get up and say their piece and speak for as long as they like about what they want to say about that topic. And the conversation goes on until everybody who wants to have something to say has had their chance to say it. And that's a process that typically can go on for days and days, which is, of course, highly incompatible with our modern, fast-paced lives and the way that we develop environmental regulation or policy frameworks and so on. So these two cultures came together and clashed. And, you know, behind it all, there was generations of hurt and mistrust and, and you know, the, the historic theft of land by early governments and settlers in New Zealand. Um, and all of this sort of came to a head and essentially, at the end of it, I think people left thinking, you know, that didn't that didn't happen at all how how we thought it was going to happen. But we all knew and learned a lot more around the complexities of these kind of stories and different worldviews and narratives coming together. Yeah, it's interesting the juxtaposition, seeming juxtaposition of discomfort and collaboration. Sort of this idea that collaboration is just okay. We all get along and agree a way forward together, but actually. If anybody's ever been in a long-term relationship, you know that friction can be productive. You know that conflicts can be a breakthrough moment to find a way forward together. So it is interesting, particularly in these sort of, quote, nice spaces that we tend to both operate in of environmentalism and collaboration and multiculturalism. And we like to just be nice. And actually what can happen is then we rush through the uncomfortable bits that are really important and really important to make underrepresented people or traditionally op- repressed or oppressed people feel that they have the space and time to truly contribute. So it's interesting. I, I just, I feel like, yeah, not having uncomfortable conversations is really the luxury of privilege, isn't it? You're like, oh, let's keep this nice. Hmm. It is. It is. Absolutely. And, and that is, I mean, that is something that we do have to face up to as a Western society is that we have, you know, bowled in with our worldview, our very science-based worldview about how to tackle problems mm. and that we haven't made space for those voices. And when somebody pushes back and says, actually, you know, I am going to be strong on this and I have something to say and you haven't been listening to me, um, that's highly uncomfortable. And then we reflect back and go, oh, Maybe you've been highly uncomfortable for many, many years. (laughs) (laughs) 
decades, millennia even. And now it's on and now it's on you to, you know, make me feel uncomfortable so that I can recognize my own privilege. It's really, yeah, it's a really interesting thing and something that I do talk about a little bit in the book is a couple of, of moments of really coming up against my own privilege and being forced to examine that and put it under the microscope and go, oh, oh wow, you know? And that's that's an important piece of work that we need to do and 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 a work that absolutely needs to happen on an individual level mm-hmm. in order for us to be able to tackle these big systemic problems collectively. I mean, yeah. my background is in environmental work. And so when I originally went to write the book, it was going to be a book about, you know, storytelling for environmental change. Um, but as I started writing and thinking more and more about it, I realized there is there is no environmental change without social and cultural change. Mm. None of our environmental problems are actually really environmental problems. They are problems with the cultural system that we have set up and our relationship to the environment. And to each other. And, well, 80% of biodiversity in the world is protected by the like small percentage, 25% of indigenous people or whatever. And that is our, those are our lungs. Those are our, gar- our carbon sinks. Those are people who are way underrepresented in power, but are hugely important for our collective survival. But it's interesting bringing it back to this idea of collectivism, because it could just be such a nice white middle-class idea. The collectivism really is about facing our hard personal truth, isn't it? And, and facing our privilege and... Uh, I still really don't understand why, let's just say it, white people don't often react well to being confronted with or just having to admit that they have a lot of inbuilt privilege because society is built on favoring white people Mm. at the cost of others. And I don't understand why that, I genuinely just can't relate to why that is such a threat and why people have to deny it or fight it or like, I, I know that this is actually probably something I need to get a grip on because it's not helpful to not understand it. But I'm just like, of course I have privilege. I'm going to do something good with it. <laughs> but I have it and I need to recognize it and not stomp all over other people. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Betsy, you host a, a podcast called The Discomfort Practice. So you you have done a lot of this work already, right? Oh, I roll um, around in it. It's my hobby. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I, I'm on a journey too. And um, there's a fantastic quote, I think, near the end of Robin D'Angelo's book um, on white fragility around how when you do finally recognize that you have been socialized uh, within a racist worldview and you do finally say, well, of course I am racist because I have been socialized within this white-centric view of the universe. When you finally come to that realization, there's almost a sense of relief because then you don't have to keep on denying it and pushing mm-hmm. back against it. You can say, oh, yes, this is a reality. And then you can work, you know, instead focus your efforts on working to dismantle that in your everyday um, interactions and and figuring out how you can actually start changing it rather than expending all of that energy on denying the existence of this very obvious thing. It is a lot of energy to deny things, isn't it? I love the point you made before we talked about privilege, about how you started writing a book that was about environmental storytelling. And then you realized, wait a minute, this is all connected because I just lit up. I've been waiting my entire life and career for the whole world to realize this, that 
when I work in sustainability, it's not that I'm a hardcore environmentalist. I love the environment because I love human beings and I like surviving and being healthy myself because everything is connected. So it's interesting that you kind of came to that and were like, oh, it's all connected, which of course you obviously knew, but in writing stories about it, that probably was a very different process. So talk about the process. What actually led you to decide, okay, I'm going to sit down and write this book. And then what was the process of writing it like? Well, well, the decision was very much a, um, a public uh, commitment, which I have found quite effective in the past for making me do things. <laughs> you started well. Okay, start as you intend to continue. Good job, Alina. <laughs> yeah. The, um, the fellow who I mentioned earlier, Johan Rockström, who wrote my foreword, um, was a keynote speaker at another one of these impact summits that we hosted at Edmontonary Fellowship. And he'd written a book called Big World, Small Planet, um, along with a award-winning photographer, Matthias Klum, about climate change and about humanity's ascent, really, their, their role in all of these incremental steps and in how we got to where we are today, because it's so many small steps along the way. Um, and I had read his book and really loved it. It's quite accessible. And I wrote a four-minute spoken word piece basically summarizing a lot of his book <laughs> and um, and it, it, it hit a lot of people. I performed that poem right before he went on stage and it was quite an emotional poem. It talks about 75,000 years of human history in this very sort of abstract way, telling stories of different people um, throughout the ages. And then it, um, I cheekily finished it by referring to a unborn child inside my belly as I was five months pregnant. Um, mm -hmm. And the poem just like resonated with so many people. And afterwards I had at least three or four of these old white gentlemen in suits coming up to me with tears in their eyes. And I was like, wow, I made old white men cry. You know? <laughs> like this, this is something powerful. <laughs> wow. And, um, and I, yeah, I mulled that over for a couple of days. And at the end of the conference, um, they asked for people to come up on stage and, and um, you know, we did this exercise at the end where um, we discussed things that we were going to do in the next six to 12 months or, or goals that, that had been birthed within this impact summit or inspired by, by the conversations that we'd had. And I got up on stage and said, I'm, I'm planning to write a book on storytelling for impact and storytelling for change. And so, you know, after telling a room of three or 400 people and people who knew me, you know, so who could hold me to account oh. that I was going to write a book, I, I kind of had to do it. <laughs> pretty good plan, Alina. It's a pretty it good is. plan. Also, <laughs> bold, bold, bold. Maybe, maybe more bold than wise at the time because I've written a book and Absolutely. I know what it's like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Oof. I was like, oh, no, now I have to do that thing. <laughs> yeah. But it was good well, because, you know. Good job. That was good planning. <laughs> yeah, mm. yeah, good planning. Good yeah. plan. I did. I, I did give it eighteen months before I even started trying. You know, I, I had this this new child, and and so yeah, about eighteen months ago, I started writing it or taking it seriously, and then a, a little over a year ago, I actually quit most of my other work and focused on writing this book full time from about August twenty twenty through to uh, now. Here we are in October twenty twenty one. And um, it certainly, you know, it was it was not smooth sailing. 
Yep. As you know. <laughs> I know. Oh man, it's like giving birth for a long time, isn't it? For like a oh, year. A really long time. It's like <laughs> 18 months of labor pains. <laughs> yes. And there's some moments of euphoria and joy, you know, spattered throughout there as well. But um, I mean, for me, the, the really hard moment came earlier this year in about January, I think. I had a conversation with a couple of people, lovely, dear people who they, they actually I'd been talking to them about recording the audiobook because they have a studio here in Wellington. And they both read the manuscript, um, bless them, because they, they did that for free and didn't charge me for it. And they sat me down and said, look, this book is too complex, I think, for us to work within your budget. There's so many different styles going on in here that um, it would take a lot more editing than we had when we had thought. And so I said, well, you know, that's wonderful. Thank you for your honesty. And let's, let's talk about that. Let's, <laughs> oh, well, you know, what did you, what did you think of the book? And we basically had a two-hour conversation. It was one of those one of those like conversations that you walk out of going, "Oh no, <laughs> uncomfortable, <laughs> yeah, <Crap>. uncomfortable." <laughs> it's where the juice um, is. Crap. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, I mean, they pointed out the forest for the trees, and something that I think I had known on some level is that I was trying to do too many things with this book. Mm. I was trying to speak to too many different audiences. I wanted it to be a book for everyone, which is the classic mistake that first-time authors make is, right, like I want my book to be for everyone rather than having a specifically defined audience. And, you know, I had been told that up front, but you kind of need to go through it to learn it. Yeah, definitely. It's part of the process. But I do love the irony of the fact that it's about storytelling and effective storytelling is all about knowing your audience and putting it in the right language for them. And you're just like, nope, just everybody. I'm going to reach everybody with this book about storytelling. Right. Oof, and ambitious. they also pointed out the irony that, you know, I, I talk a lot about tolerance and acceptance for people who have different views from you and just listening um, you know, listening for the purpose of just hearing their views rather than listening to formulate your response. And they pointed out that in a few places I was doing exactly that. I was like pointing out the flaws in other people's thinking and arguments. And there were moments where it was, you know, a bit adversarial. And so I did a, um, a three-month intensive re-edit and <sighs> carved about 22,000 words off the book. I took out five chapters in the end. And um, really toned down some of the language um, to to appeal to people and not um, antagonize those who might be coming at it from a different point of view, which is exactly what I am <laughs> espousing, right? So I was taking my own medicine in, in many ways. Yeah, it's... It's such a process, but also like just storytelling in general is that process of iteration. Did you feel a sense of relief though after you did the edit and were like, and you were like, oh yeah, this is what it needed to be? Absolutely, yeah. It it felt it felt right, and yeah, there was just that that relief and and thankfulness that somebody had had pulled me up and said, hey, you know, this. Do you really want to put this out in the world? You can. But I think it would be better if you do this and this. And that was a hard conversation for them to have, right? That was uncomfortable for them as well. And I'm so grateful to the two of them for, for doing that for me. Mm, it's, a great, it's a great illustration of how giving someone hard feedback, we'll call it constructive, it's never negative, it's just what you do with it, can be such a gift 
you know, like somebody's willing to stick their neck out and have you possibly hate them, but it's actually because they care. <laughs> exactly. Yay to those people. Exactly. Thank you and they people. didn't know me super well, so they were taking a bit of a risk. Yeah. But um, but because of that, you know, I I just absolutely respect them so much that, that, that they would do that. And I guess not everybody might have that reaction, but for me, it was it was certainly the right move, and um, and just resulted in a, in a lot more concise, tight book that um, that speaks to people. And I mean, the audience I'm looking to speak to is is people that care about these big issues, about social inequality, um, and the housing crisis. We have a massive housing crisis in New Zealand right now. Um, climate change, all of these ecological issues don't necessarily work actively day to day to, you know, to solve them, but also feel a sense of inertia around how do we tackle these massive things. And, and my point is, we just need to come back to, to the stories that we tell around how we interact with the world, how we interact with other people, because those stories are the foundations upon which our entire culture or global cultures are built. Because mm, you talk about myths, don't you? You sort of propose some new myths. So I'm aware that our time is starting to run short, but I really want to ask, what's one particular myth or story that you absolutely love from the book that you just want to share with people to take with them? Yeah, I think, I think before I go there, I'll explain what I mean by myth, because it's, it's a much maligned term and it's, and it's a largely misunderstood term these days. I mean, myth in our popular culture has become synonymous with lies or untruth or some theory that we believed before we knew better. Uh, but originally, the meaning of the word myth is, is very much around a, an innate truth that's wrapped in story. It's a, it was, a, it was a, a form of a teaching story. Mm -hmm. um, and so in my book, I, I, I kind of reclaim the word myth to be this guiding force for good. Because we look, if we're looking at the big problems that we face as a global society, we really need something common to believe in. And with so many different cultures and viewpoints and belief systems, I think the best that we can do is, is a truth that's wrapped, wrapped in story because story is so powerful. We're never going to agree on all of the details, but if we can at least you know, agree on the compass direction that we want to move in, which mm. is where I see the role of myth, then we might have a fighting chance. Um, so some of the myths that I talk about in the book and the, in the, the final section, the last 10 chapters are all new myths for humanity. And they're all um, reframes, I guess, of current narratives that we have. So reframing the current narrative of individualism to one of collectivism, which we've talked about. Reframing ourselves as discrete individual beings um, that are separate from the natural world as actually being a integral part of the natural world. I mean, we swap atoms in our bodies, 98% of the atoms in our bodies with the world around us every year. We are the world. We are nature. Mm. Um, and then there's, you know, there's a, a huge piece around um, consumerism and this, and this current narrative that we have around what, constitutes a, a good and happy and successful life is accumulating a lot of material wealth and as we know that's completely incompatible with a healthy thriving planet so there's um yeah there's a there's a myth in there from moving from stuff to enough and and from mm. me to we and from 
tree to me. Mm. <laughs> I like They've that all one. got catchy titles. <laughs> tree to me. Ah, uh, well, everybody listening, A Future Untold is out the end of October, and you need to pre-order it or order it if you're listening to this after the end of October 2021. I have a st- growing stack of books that I really need to get through, and this will be added to my stack of books, and I plan to read it. Uh, possibly aloud to people I care about because I think it sounds like a good read aloud book. But I'm just so grateful for what you're doing in the world. I'm so delighted to know that that this book is coming out. And and obviously, I totally enjoyed this chat with you, Alina. So you're definitely going to come back in, in a bit and tell us how the book launch has gone, what it's like to launch a book during a pandemic, because obviously events are hard right now but also how it's landed with people. And I can't wait to hear the impact that it has in the world. So A, thank you for writing it and putting it out there, but B, thank you for all of the decades of work and wisdom that has gone into it. It's made you somebody who is an expert in storytelling and you're giving this tool to the world. So thank you. You're most welcome, Betsy. And, and thank you for, uh, for pushing boundaries and, and pushing our levels of discomfort. Anytime. It's what I specialize in. I came straight from teaching yin yoga and telling people to just sit in their discomfort and then sit still. So I I just do this. I don't know why I get a kick out of it and I do it myself and I don't always get a kick out of it, but discomfort is what we need. It's the good stuff. It's where the juice is. (laughs) So I will keep on keeping on and we will catch up soon, but good luck with your book launch and thank you so much for being here today. Thanks, Betsy. Thanks for getting uncomfortable with me. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave me a review wherever you listen to podcasts and head over to the Discomfort Practice Patreon page. For the cost of a cup of coffee once a month, you can become a contributor and help us to produce this podcast and reach new people with the idea that discomfort is just the edge of change, the edge of our superpowers, and the edge of changing the world for the better. Thanks to my wonderful team who helped me produce this podcast, to Thomas Sheffer for the original music, Katrina Affleck for the original artwork, and to my co-producer Spencer Rausch. Let's all stay uncomfortable. Thank you.